Christian, have you ever heard someone say, or have you ever said, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was 12 years old, and as my Lord when I was 21? Or I was saved when I was 8 years old, and I surrendered to Christ when I was 12? Truth be told, we've had a few testimonies at New City where people have said something quite similar. They chronologically separate the point when believers first experience justification and begin progressive sanctification. Uh, What I mean is, first the person gets saved, and then at a point in time down the road, uh, perhaps years later, the person gets serious about repentance and living a holy life. Now, I hope what I just said curls your hair. Uh, A chronological separation between justification and when sanctification begins is unbiblical. That's not what happens in conversion. That's not what the Christian life looks like. And it's, it's a dangerous teaching to believe in as it can lead to a false assurance of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are not we are not declared righteous by God on the merits of Jesus Christ and our sin forgiven only to remain free, not to repent of sin. Romans 6, 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We've died with Christ. We've been raised with him. That's just a fact. Let let me preface all of this, what I'm about to say, by saying that I attended a Wesleyan Methodist church from the time I was 10 until I was 17. I I wasn't a Christian at the time. I was dragged kicking and screaming to church by my mother each week. Uh, But I heard this sort of thing all the time. I'd hear it from the pulpit. Christians in our church were living a defeated life rather than a victorious life. A lower life rather than a higher life. A shallow life rather than a deeper life, a fruitless life, rather than a more abundant life. They were carnal, not spiritual. They had experienced the first blessing, but still needed the second blessing, the abundant life, the full life. Jesus was their savior, but he still wasn't their master or Lord. So the pastor would urge the congregation to make Jesus their master, their Lord, or to dedicate themselves afresh through surrender and faith to let go and to let God. Because according to this brand of theology, there are two categories of Christian. There is the carnal Christian and there is the spiritual Christian. And it's not just Wesleyan Methodists who chronologically separate when believers first experience justification and begin progressive sanctification, this teaching or a variant of it is very, very common. It's pervasive in the church. If you haven't heard it yet, you will come across this because countless people have propagated it in so many ways, especially in sermons and devotional writings. Higher life theology, as it's called, is an appealing teaching because Christians struggle with sin. And we want to be victorious in that struggle. We want to be victorious now. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a silver bullet that could kill sin dead in your life, Christian? You could could be victorious. I I know I would. I'd love to have that kind of silver bullet. 
And, and then your pastor tells you that certainly is possible. In fact, it's nothing, nothing less than what God teaches in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There we see the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. Carnal Christians live like non-Christians and need to experience a let-go-and-let-God crisis to become spiritual Christians, so it's taught, right? And so that's what you need to do. So just abide in Christ, be filled with the Spirit, have faith, and surrender. So all that's coming from a good desire. It's a shortcut to instantaneous victory, instant victory over sin, which appeals to Christians because we long for genuine holiness And this offers a quick fix in this struggle. But according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a quick fix is a quick and easy remedy or solution, or negatively, an expedient but temporary solution which fails to address the underlying problems. And that's precisely what higher life theology is, an easy but temporary uh, solution or remedy that fails to address the underlying problems. And the underlying problem is sin in the believer's life. And when it comes to matters of sin, of holiness, of Christian obedience, those are teachings where we want all of our ducks in a faithful, God-pleasing row. Doctrinal exactness in this matter particularly, is so, so important. Uh, We're not splitting hairs here, not at all. People's souls are on the line. Because if this is the the approach that we're taking, a, a second blessing of a higher spiritual life as we're filled with the Spirit and abiding in Jesus Christ, then this quick fix to our struggle with sin will not result in a victorious life, a higher life, a deeper life, a more abundant life. It will result in a misguided, frustrated, disillusioned, and or destroyed life. Why? Because it's not a biblical view. It's not a biblical view of progressive sanctification. It's not a biblical view of progressive holiness. And so it can, and it does, cause incalculable spiritual damage. It's a dangerous teaching. Higher life theology is commendable uh, in some ways. It it exalts Christ. Um, It emphasizes that Christians must practice spiritual disciplines. It has a legacy of faithful Christian leaders. But its harmful features far outweigh its positive ones. It creates two categories of Christian. This is its primary error. Two categories of Christians, and and the text that's appealed to to support these two categories of Christians is our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But higher life also portrays a shallow and incomplete view of sin in the Christian life. It emphasizes passivity and not activity when it comes to holy living. Uh, It portrays the Christian's free will as autonomously starting and stopping sanctification. It doesn't interpret and apply the Bible accurately. It assures spurious Christians that they are indeed saved. It uses superficial formulas for instantaneous sanctification. It frustrates and disillusions the have-nots and misinterprets personal experiences. Now, to the relatively new believers in Jesus Christ here today, I wish I could tell you that almost all Christians agree on almost everything, even basic things, 
like how to become spiritually mature and more holy in the Lord, but that's simply not the case. Uh, Christians who read and think are invariably called upon to hear and evaluate strong competing views, including mutually exclusive interpretations of the Bible. And so part of your spiritual growth, only a part, but it's an important part, depends on developing the ability, with God's help, of distinguishing a good argument from a bad argument, of approving and holding fast to what is good and questioning and rejecting what is false and slippery. Today we begin our look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. My plan is to tackle this chapter over the course of two sermons. So today is verses 1 through 4. And when Jill and I come back from our vacation, Lord willing, uh, verses 5 through 23, all in one shot. Uh, This chapter holds a dubious distinction. Few chapters in the New Testament have been abused by preachers and writers more than 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Did you know uh, this is the chapter that's appealed to to support the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory? Uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, uh, but unlike hell, the experience of purgatory is said to be temporary. Uh, Rome teaches Catholics with unconfessed sin go there to suffer for a while until God judges that they're ready for heaven. Uh, Such a person will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Chapter 3, verse 15. That verse keeps coming up, by the way. This is the text that Rome appeals to, though actually those who adhere to the doctrine of purgatory, uh, they rest the weight of their argument more on on apocryphal books and church tradition rather than the Old or New Testaments. But related to our theme today, commonly in evangelicalism, Christians appeal to this chapter for a threefold division of the human race. You've got to watch this carefully. Uh, This gets to the root of what I was just saying before, but now look out, okay, everything, everything I'm about to say is false, all right? Uh, This is not what the Bible teaches. I'm merely explaining the bad teaching. I'm explaining how this text is twisted by millions and millions of believers before I properly preach the passage with God's help, all right? So here we go. This is all wrong. At one end of the spectrum is the person without the spirit, right? So the unregenerate person, the unbeliever. At the other end of the spectrum is the person with the spirit. That is, the spiritual Christian. That's what they're called, the spiritual Christian. The man or woman who is walking with the Lord in joyful obedience and fruitfulness. In between is the carnal Christian, the worldly Christian, the fleshy Christian. The person who has accepted Jesus as their Savior, but not their Lord. So it's argued, right? And this carnal Christian, so it's taught, is a believer. They're assured of heaven, even though they're living a life that's indistinguishable from the world. Such a person, we're told, will be saved, though only as one escaping through the flames. Whatever work he or she has done is burned up. Such people suffer loss. Again, chapter 3, verse 15. A lot of liberties have been taken with that one verse. But such a person is still going to heaven when they die. 
See, that's the important thing. To use, to use a, a painful example, and I'm not, I'm not mentioning this glibly, all right? I've often heard this sort of thing from Christian parents in reference to their adult children. Children who made professions of faith when they were 13 years old. Uh, for the past 20 years, though, they've been living like the world and the flesh and the devil, nor have they darkened the door of a church in all that time. Uh, but when you ask the Christian parent how their child is doing spiritually, they merely reply, they're not walking with the Lord. Now, to my thinking, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, that's sort of a, a euphemistic code for this. What they're really saying is, my adult child is a carnal Christian. They're not living in a way of Christian obedience. They're, they're living in habitual, unrepentant sin. But, thank God, they're still going to heaven. Jesus is still their savior. He's just not their master. But do you see what that parent has done? They've separated faith from the evidence of faith. The certain, certain fruit of obedience. They're promoting a version of Christian, quote-unquote, living that doesn't include the repentance of sin. Now, at a superficial level, this sort of interpretation of chapter 3 might sound plausible enough until we observe through careful exegesis that verse 15, that most sinned against of verses, which talks about suffering loss and escaping through the flames, doesn't apply to the worldly person or the carnal Christian at all. Don Carson nails this. He says, what this means is that we mustn't apply carnal Christian or worldly Christian to every person who has made a profession of faith perhaps years ago, but who for umpteen years has lived without any evidence of Christian faith, life, repentance, values, or interests. In such instances, it's far more likely that we're dealing with spurious conversions, false conversions. And once this is clear, brothers and sisters, once we understand that, Paul's point here becomes very, very powerful. Those who have the Spirit and who therefore come to grips with the message of the cross are expected to mature rapidly. That's the point. Those who have the Spirit who, and who therefore have come to grips with the message of the cross are expected to mature rapidly. That's the point. What does that maturation look like? How will it disclose itself? As we look at this text, uh, in a growing ability to take in more and more Christian truth and in a large-hearted attitude that avoids quarreling and jealousy and refuses to sink into narrow factionalism, division within the church, the body of Christ. That's what maturity looks like. Now, if some who have the Spirit are slow to display this rising maturity, uh, people like the Corinthians, the kindest interpretation is that they are worldly. In these matters, they are acting like mere human beings instead of like Christian men and women, men and women empowered by 
the Spirit of God. They are unacceptably spiritually immature. There's a culpability with this, all right? So look at your, the big picture in your handout. Paul laments that his brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church who are dividing over the church, teachers, are not acting like people with the Spirit. Instead, they are acting in a worldly, carnal, fleshy way like people without the Spirit. They're acting immaturely. This is wretched and unacceptable. Those who have the Spirit and who therefore come to grips with the message of the cross, as it's laid out in 1 Corinthians 2, are expected to mature rapidly. It's only four verses, but it packs a wallop. Now, although Paul's about to tear a strip off the Corinthians' back, he does believe that they are Christians. It's essential that we see that. They have the Spirit of God. They have the mind of Christ. Paul's just finished explaining that in chapter 2, right? And, so, and for Paul, that is the decisive factor. If you think of Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So at heart, they really have grasped the message of Christ crucified. The Corinthians have, even if they haven't brought their lives into conformity with that message. And Paul wants the Corinthian believers to recognize that this is how he thinks of them, uh, which is why he addresses them as brothers and sisters in verse 1. But even though he doesn't tell them that they they don't have the Holy Spirit and so are unbelievers, uh, what he does say is shocking. Look at verse 1. And just, just imagine, can you imagine if we received a letter like this from the Apostle Paul, New City? He's talking to New City here. Oh, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Man, that is, that is not what you want to hear. And, and the Greek word behind worldly in the NIV translation is sarkonos. It's literally fleshy. And the Latin equivalent of fleshy rendered into English is carnal. And that's the word that's used in the King James Version. That's how we come to speak of carnal Christians. Right? It's coming out of the Latin King James Version. Now, you can see that actually the translation comparisons I've set up here in your, in, your, in your insert, in your bullets, and I hope that's helpful. You can kind of take that home and look it over, how they're translating these various words. A lot of confusion, I think, comes from not understanding the words that are being listed here. Uh, now, there, there's no doubt, there's no doubt, there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. Uh, just because the term has been hijacked by the higher life movement doesn't mean it's not a biblical concept. The Corinthians have the Spirit, they're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, yet Paul says they're carnal, they're worldly, they're fleshy. So the question is, biblically speaking, based on the context, what is a carnal, worldly, fleshy Christian? Again, Carson's helpful here. And and for the exegesis of these four verses, I'm following this uh, helpful little book called The Cross and Christian Ministry that he wrote quite closely. It's very good. Uh, We need to bear two things in mind. First, in modern English, the expression carnal Christian 
is potentially misleading. We don't use the word carnal in that sense anymore. I mean, usage doesn't remain static, right? So when, when we think of the word carnal, we think of sex. Uh, carnal desire, right? That's sexual. But at this point in the letter, Paul's not accusing the Corinthians of lust or sexual misconduct, which is probably why the NIV translation team chose the word worldly to render the, this Greek word. Um, they wanted to avoid any kind of confusion with that. Worldly suggests a broader failure, more than just sexual. Uh, now, there's all kinds of sexual sin in the Corinthian church, uh, but Paul's not addressing that here, not yet. Second, the word sarkonos, that Greek word itself, simply means something like made of flesh, merely human. So what the apostle is saying is that he's discovered he can't address the Corinthians as those who live by the Spirit. He has to speak to them as people who are still worldly, fleshy, that is, people as people without the Spirit. I mean, what a, what a damning indictment that is. Which means, on the one hand, Paul believes the Corinthians do possess the Spirit. They are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, verse 1. Right? But on the other hand, he feels he cannot address them as people who live by the Spirit. They're mere infants in Christ. And, and we might be tempted to think, well, that's not so bad, is it? I mean, we all have room to grow, after all. No one's saying I'm a fully developed Christian in the here and now. You know, none of us are in our glorified state yet. So let me clarify that. Paul judges them to be wretchedly, unacceptably spiritually immature. He tears a strip off them. People, he, he says that they're worldly. He says they're mere infants in Christ. I happened to be watching uh, the time travel movie Looper this week. I don't know if you've seen this, but it reminded me of this. Um, for those of you who've seen it, do you recall the disgust Bruce Willis has in the diner when he's talking to his younger self by 30 years, played by Jason Gordon Levitt? Um, he's always calling his younger self boy and baby and insulting him about his child mentality and that he needs to shut his child mouth. Chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, back when I planted the church five years ago. For you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So five years, no spiritual growth, no development. There's still babies in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm speaking outside my experience here, but uh, you parents, you know all about 2 a.m. feedings. Some kids are a dream to feed. You can change them and feed them in under 20 minutes with your eyes half closed. You're still in a, in a semi-conscious state before you just roll back into bed and sleep the rest of the night. With other children, it's a nightmare. I won't, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I, I, I know. Um, I have a friend who said that the only time he's ever heard his Christian wife swear in five years uh, was during a feeding, or a non-feeding, I should say. Uh, for a host of reasons, feedings can be slow. Some infants need to be burped every ounce or so, which is a painfully slow process. Uh, and if you're not burped, what's the price you pay? Vomit, right? Spit up. Uh, but uh, and, and sometimes there could be a real medical condition where there's, there's projectile vomiting. 
But a, a little baby has an excuse. Uh, their digestive system isn't well developed yet, and, and they'll quickly outgrow this stage. But live as a Christian long enough, be a member of a local church long enough, and you will find there are Christians who are, spiritually speaking, world-class projectile vomiters, even after years and years of life. They simply cannot digest what Paul calls solid food. You must give them milk. They're not ready for anything more. And if you try to give them anything other than milk, they upchuck and make a mess of everyone and everything around them. How's that for a disgusting analogy? (laughs) Uh, At some point, the number of years that they've been Christians lead you to expect that something like mature behavior from them, but they prove disappointing. And you will see this, Christian. You will experience this. Just don't you be that person. They're infants still, and they display their immaturity even in the way that they complain if you give them more than milk. Not for them, solid knowledge of scripture or mature theological reflection or growing and perceptive Christian thought. They want nothing more than another round of praise choruses and a a simple message from the pulpit, something that won't challenge them to think, to examine their lives, to make hard choices, and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of God. The Corinthians should be acting like grown-ups, but instead they're acting like infants, like spiritual babies. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. And this immaturity is something for which they'll be held accountable. Unlike a baby who can't help their condition if they're not being burped, right? Paul holds these people responsible for their worldliness. They are not growing in their understanding and application of the word of God generally and of the gospel in particular. That they're stuck at the milk stage. You are still worldly, verse 3. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Are you not acting in ways that are characteristic of people without the Spirit? That's what he's saying. Of people who precisely because they don't have the Spirit have nothing to fall back on but their own sinful human nature, their, their fleshy nature. Again, what a, what a damning indictment this is. You would not want to hear this. That's what he's saying. This is, this is serious, serious business. Uh, I, I think he'd be hard-pressed, actually, to put it into more dire terms than what he's done. Uh, these Christians, these Christians are acting like pagans. They're acting like fallen human beings without the Spirit. They are worldly. They're exhibiting what is characteristic of fallen human nature. How so? They're dividing over church teachers. The proof is the jealousy and the quarreling among them. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not mere human beings? So this is what Paul means by a worldly Christian, a carnal Christian. Hear this. A carnal Christian is a genuine Christian. They have the Holy Spirit, 
temporarily gone astray. Paul doesn't have in mind someone who's made a profession of faith and carried on in the Christian way for a short while before reverting to a lifestyle indistinguishable in every respect from that of the world. No. Christians who are carnal are only temporarily carnal, not permanently carnal. Furthermore, the carnality does not necessarily extend equally to every area of a Christian's life, nor does it characterize a Christian's entire lifestyle. In the case of the Corinthians, Paul calls them fleshy specifically because they're being sinfully divisive. In this sense, one could say that all Christians prior to their glorification are fleshy to some degree in some areas, but not characteristically so overall. What this passage does not support, this is so important to understand, it does not support a permanent, a permanent category called carnal Christians, in which fruitless, fleshy, professing believers may remain throughout their entire Christian life. That is a gross distortion of what this text teaches. All Christians are spiritual. None are permanently carnal. There will be repentance of sin. But if a professing Christian slips far enough, if that professing Christian does not repent of sin, if sin characterizes a life, if they're living in habitual, unrepentant sin, a further category has to be found for them, and there is such a category. In 2 Corinthians, after he's discovered that the Corinthian church, despite temporary restoration, has succumbed yet again to false apostles, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, and to a lifestyle that does not glory in the cross, 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, Paul finally feels forced to this extreme injunction. He says this, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? In other words, if their drift away from the gospel becomes serious enough, Paul questions whether they're Christians at all. What this means, New City, is we must not apply the name carnal Christian or worldly Christian to a person who at one time made a profession of faith, but who for years has lived without any evidence of Christian faith, Christian life, Christian repentance, Christian values, or Christian interests. In such instances, it's far more likely we're dealing with a false conversion, a spurious conversion, right? I mean, the the parable of the sower. And once this is clear, once we understand that, once we can kind of jettison the higher life theology and just like look clearly at the exegesis of this text, Paul's point becomes very, very powerful. Those who have the Spirit and who therefore come to grips with the message of the cross as it's preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 are expected to mature rapidly. Such maturation will disclose itself in a growing ability to take in more Christian truth. It will also show itself in a large-hearted attitude that avoids quarreling and jealousy and which refuses to sink into narrow factionalism, division in the church. And if some who have the Spirit are slow to display this rising maturity, 
the kindest interpretation is that they are worldly. In these matters, they are acting like mere human beings instead of like Christian men and women empowered by the Spirit of God. They are wretchedly, unacceptably, spiritually immature. It needs to change. And thank God, there is time to change. God doesn't just say, you've got five months to, to you know, clean up your house, otherwise you're out. Thank God for that. But a disastrous result of dividing Christians into two distinct categories, you have the carnal and the spiritual, is that higher life th- theology can have a comforting, soothing effect on professing Christians who are not actually genuine believers. Such a person might think, I'm a carnal Christian, not a spiritual Christian, but I'm still on my way to heaven. Higher life theology offers such a person false assurance. A spurious Christian should not have assurance that they have eternal life. That is very dangerous. So let me warn you, friend. If, if a sinful lifestyle characterizes you, such as unrepentantly indulging in pornography or immoral sex, then you should question whether you really are a Christian. Furthermore, if a person identifies as a carnal Christian, think about this. On what basis can a church excommunicate a so-called brother or sister? Right? To have two classes of Christians makes the biblical commands to exercise church discipline impossible to apply. How would we make any sort of distinction? If Christians walk exactly like non-Christians, then the only way we could distinguish Christians from non-Christians would be by their profession of faith, not by their life. Yet scripture makes clear that we are to exercise discipline on the basis of the walk of professing believers. No, no, no. There are just two categories into which all humans fit. Non-Christian, Christian. Unregenerate, regenerate. Unbelieving, believing. Unrepentant, repentant. Unconverted, converted. Without the Spirit, with the Spirit. It's just those two. But obviously, within those two categories, there's, there's gradations, right? Okay. Again, Carson writes this, Owing to the gifts of what many theologians call God's common grace, that is, grace that God gives commonly, and not just to those who are justified, unbelievers do all sorts of good things and display a rich array of gifts. But this no no more makes them believers than the presence of a single sin proves a man or a woman to be an unbeliever. Among believers, there are different rates of growth different levels of maturity, different displays of gifts, different attainments in disciplined holiness and self-sacrificing love. And where Christians are not living up to expectations on some point, Paul can berate them for living like worldly people, like mere human beings, like the unregenerate. They're not living up to what they are called to be. You said, do you remember the first sermon in this series? Do you remember what it was entitled? It was very deliberate. Christian, become what you are. So if this sermon is making you feel uncomfortable, if you're feeling nervous about the state of your soul, 
if you feel you might be presuming upon God's grace, because you've been content to live in sin for years and yet still call yourself a believer, then go back to that sermon. Christian, become what you are. Saints must live like saints. We must become practically what we already are positionally. Because where the failures are chronic and repeated and serious, Paul doesn't tell us that we're second-class Christians on a lower tier, right? A category qualitatively different from both non-Christians and first-class Christians. No, he, he tells us to check the foundations again. We may not be Christians at all. Beloved, where is Paul taking us from here? I'm going to close with this. You, you know, it might, it actually, it might be helpful uh, during my time away uh, on holidays to, in your daily devotions, read through this whole epistle. Read through 1 Corinthians. Uh, it would be good if you could trace the apostles' theological message throughout the whole book. Look with me at the top of your handout, the very top of it. This goes way back to our Sunday school introduction, back on YouTube, <laughs> to the book of 1 Corinthians, back when COVID was at its thickest. Uh, in one sentence, the theological message of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel requires God's people, God's holy people, to mature in purity and unity, right? The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. The church in Corinth has many problems, but the gospel solved them all. So I want to ask, who are then God's holy people? Are these the super-duper spiritual Christians who walk on a higher plane? No, God's holy people refers to all Christians, everyone indwelt by the person of God, the Holy Spirit, even the Corinthians. Remember how Paul addresses them in chapter 1, verse 2? He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So all Christians, all Christians must mature. And that mature metaphor is coming from our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which implies that God's people must increasingly become what we already are. Saints must live like saints. We must become practically what we already are positionally. And as we become more holy, we'll increasingly not tolerate sin. Sin like dividing over church leaders. I'm for Pastor John. I'm for Pastor Alex. Or sins like lawsuits in the church. Or sexual immorality. Or in our husband-wife relations. And as we become more holy will increasingly build each other up. Like in the context of food, sacrifice to idols, or when the church gathers for worship. So think of the Lord's Supper, head coverings, the use of spiritual gifts. Instead of all these things being used in sinful, selfish ways, we will put others first. We will not be self-seeking. Chapter 13, love is not self-seeking. But do you see how all this hangs together? He's building up the foundation right now where he's going he's gonna to launch into the rest of the book. Paul's not making this up as he goes along. He knows exactly where he's going. The theological message of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity 
and unity. The gospel demands it. And through the power of God's spirit, that's what's going to happen when this letter gets a hold of you, Christian. That's how it's going to impact this local church. Amen.